Startle us, O God, with the good news, the truth, in these stories from ancient days. These stories that still speak to us today if we are willing to listen. And so open our hearts, our minds, our spirits to your spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I love Christmas. I'm sure plenty of you would say the same thing, sitting in a beautiful space such as this, enjoying the magnificent music on this fourth Sunday of Advent. I love Christmas. That could be me speaking, but it's more interesting for me to tell you those are also the words of Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine at the start of her new book about Advent. A.J. Levine is a world-famous scholar. She has preached and lectured all over the world, including here at Knox Presbyterian Church. She loves the stories of Christmas for a variety of reasons, and out of her love for those stories, she is dedicated to helping readers understand them correctly. In the introduction to her book, she notes a couple of errors that keep people from understanding these stories as they were intended. Some of us struggle with the facts. Some of us struggle with things like the appearance of the angel or the star or the details of how Mary became pregnant. These folks often either do tough intellectual gymnastics in order to make the details seem more reasonable, or they doubt the facts, and then they wonder if that makes them bad Christians. Other folks have no problem questioning the facts or the history. In fact, they go so far as to dismiss any history behind the story, and they reduce it to a kind of Christian allegory. There may be truths to be mined in these stories, they say, but those truths are not dependent on any specific historical grounding. A.J. Levine's love for these stories cautions us against both of these readings. To be sure, there are historical problems with the texts, beginning with the fact that Matthew's story and Luke's story are quite different. We sometimes forget that 2,000 years ago, people were just as capable of pointing out those problems as we are today. So it seems that the intention never was to write a newspaper article or a police report with all, all the primary emphasis on the facts. Be that as it may, it is clear that the history mattered. Matthew and Luke both name emperors and kings in their story, and they do so for a reason. This story is supposed to have something to say not just to a mythical world, but to the real world, and to people like us who live in it. This morning I'd like to take a few minutes to look at some historical markers in the Christmas story, not to split hairs about details about the location of the manger, but in order to talk about what this story is supposed to mean for us today.
The story starts in the time of King Herod. In fact, it starts way back before that. We heard in our reading this morning from the book of Isaiah about King Ahaz and the time in which he was the ruler. The Christmas story, as we most often tell it, focuses around this time of King Herod. And he is an important historical marker because of who he was to his people. Herod had killed his wife and his own sons because he thought they were threats to his power. Herod was notorious for excessive taxation in order to support egomaniacal building projects. Herod knew he was hated by his people, and he resented them enough to suggest that upon his death, the people should mourn him by sacrificing a member of their family. I could go on. But the point is this. It takes no advanced degree in psychology to conclude that Herod was a man consumed by his own fears and that he visited those fears on his family and on his subjects. This was the political world of the first Christmas. Of course, you don't have to be like Herod to know about fear. Fear is a part of everybody's life. And that point is made more clearly when you consider another character in the story, Joseph. Joseph is a good man, the story suggests. He is not rich or powerful, but he is from a respectable family and he works hard. And we can tell from the details of the story that he takes his religion seriously. He tries to do what is expected of him. Joseph is engaged to a woman named Mary, and those of you who have heard this story before will not be surprised to hear that Mary is pregnant. When Mary becomes pregnant, Joseph, a good man who has done all the right things, has to wonder, what did I do to deserve this? Mary claims she has done nothing wrong, and Joseph Joseph has every reason not to believe her. And Joseph is a good man, so having multiple options of how the law allows him to deal with this turn of events, he chooses the one that seems the most kind. He will dismiss Mary quietly. Then, then Joseph has a dream. Maybe you've had a dream like this, or you know someone who has. Imagine that Joseph, Joseph is not the kind of guy who typically goes in for a lot of superstition or who thinks much about his dreams, but there's something about this particular dream. He can't stop thinking about it. It's a message from God. And God is telling him, Joseph, do not be afraid. There is something special about this child Mary will have. Joseph needs to see this through. Joseph suddenly sees that he is about to act toward Mary according to his fears. Fears about what other people may think or about what his gut tells him might have happened. And Joseph thinks about his life and he thinks he doesn't want to be a person who lives according to fear. So he will trust the dream and take a chance. He will not be afraid. 
he will act toward Mary and toward the child in love. This is a real-world story we are reading. For who among us cannot relate to some part of the story I've been telling you? If you think about it, there's nothing unique about a ruler like Herod before he came along or ever since. In our country and in many others across the span of time, it is the norm that many people live in fear of tyrants who are in power, egomaniacal public officials who lead out of a place of fear. Often these fears, these people we are afraid of, seem distant or at least very difficult for regular people to change. But fear does not stop there. Fear is a part of our immediate lives also, just as it was for Joseph. Some people live in fear of very concrete things, very ordinary things, not enough food, unsafe surroundings, not knowing where they will sleep at night. Others of us are afraid of different things, disease or illness, disability or diminished health of any kind. Perhaps we are afraid for our children. We are afraid what will happen to them when they are infants and get sick, or when they are children built boarding the school bus for the first time. We worry about teenagers and college students and young adults who are prime in the place of life for making stupid mistakes. We are afraid for them. We are afraid of existential questions about our own existence. Will I ever figure out my real purpose? Will I ever find happiness and not feel so alone? Will I learn to live with my anxiety or my depression or my damaging memories from childhood? We are afraid to fail. We are afraid to be found out as a fraud. We are afraid that a past mistake is going to catch up to us. We are afraid. And if you said no to that entire list of fears I gave you, it might be that you're afraid of people knowing that you're afraid. This world I am describing, this is the real world people are living in when God is trying to say what is so important about Jesus through the voice of an angel. An angel appears to Joseph and says, Do not be afraid. Those are the first words out of the angel's mouth. The message was certainly relevant to the political circumstances, and they also had a personal meaning for Joseph. You do not need to live your life in fear, Joseph. The message and its history, they still speak to us today. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann says the gift of Christmas contradicts everything that we sense about our own lives. Did you hear that? The gift of Christmas contradicts everything that we sense about our own lives. Regardless of the time or place or regime under which we are living, the message of Christmas 
echoes all around us. There are tempting messages all around us to live in fear. We get those fearful messages from politicians and armies, from media and from people who want to sell you things, from your boss or your family or your friends. We hear messages about things that we need to be afraid of in so many insidious ways. We are told to be afraid. Christmas says there is another way. The Savior of the world arrives not as an accomplished adult, but as a helpless child. Not as a military hero, but as a prince of peace. Not as one who consolidates power, but as one who empties himself for others in mercy. Christ comes not as one who motivates us by fear, but one who changes hearts out of love. The gift of Christmas contradicts everything we sense about our own lives. There's been a lot of talk in recent days in these fearful times in which we're living about a hero. A hero who had a different take on life than most of us. We knew him as Mr. Rogers. This year's new film and last year's documentary of his life reminded many of us about Fred Rogers. We suddenly remembered that he was no simpleton with a change of shoes and a dollhouse. He was a person who was dead serious about the complicated emotions of childhood. The fears and confusions and anxieties that children sometimes take with them into their entire lives and that they need help from adults who love them in order to express. Here's a scene from last year's documentary some of you might remember. It's a story about fear transformed by love. A young boy named Jeff Erlanger, who had been disabled since infancy, was facing a major surgery. His parents were afraid, so was Jeff. They wrote a letter to Mr. Rogers, hoping to meet him. Mr. Rogers invited Jeff to be on the show. He told the parents they would have a chat, him and, him and Jeff, and then, then they would sing a song. On the show, Mr. Rogers asked Jeff to talk about why he needed to be in that complicated wheelchair and about what had happened to him. Jeff answered him. And Jeff helped millions of children understand that it is okay to be different and to feel afraid. And then Mr. Rogers began to sing a song. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. And then, then that little boy who didn't know what song they were going to sing before the show, then he, he joined in. 
The way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your fancy chair that's just beside you, but it's you I like, every part of you. Your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new. I hope that you remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you yourself, it's you. It's you I like. Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers wrote dozens of songs. Dozens. How many times, I wonder, did that child, Jeff Erlanger, how many times did he have fears and questions about his life that were answered in the words of that song, a song that he obviously knew by heart? Mr. Rogers took chances all the time. He took chances with being the public face of fearless kindness, a kindness that we all need and rarely see. He believed that his approach to children without question should be informed by the values he learned in his faith. He believed in a Savior who came into the world as a child to change our hearts to help us to live in love and not in fear. In an interview, Fred Rogers once said, I hope anyone who sets out to do children's programming could have the respect that I have for childhood. Because it's not all clowns and balloons. And he said, the only thing the only thing that really changes the world is when someone gets the idea that love can abound and can be shared. Not only is childhood not all clowns and balloons, but neither is adulthood. When we pretend that Christmas is all ornaments and baked goods, we miss the point. The story of Christmas is grounded in a place and time and in the lives of people who had legitimate fears. It is grounded in that history so that we will know that the story is real and has something to say to us. It is a story about the extraordinary temptation to live in fear and the invitation to live in love. The King Herods of the world may seem distant and unchangeable. And when Jesus himself grows and comes of age, the bar he sets will be impossibly high for other mortals to follow. That's why we have Joseph, as well as Mary, 
and a group of ragtag shepherds and stargazing magi and a mass of fearful people following government orders to participate in a census and an innkeeper in Bethlehem who made a little more room for a couple about to have a baby. Through all of these regular people who found the Spirit of God, we are given chances to take bold new steps in the faith of our regular lives. To ask where we have been living in fear and try instead to live in love. To nourish seeds of faith so that they might grow. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this.